Well, it is Mother's Day weekend, and I'm uh, so grateful that you are here. Those of you here in the building, those of you joining us, and uh, whether it be in Belize or in Mount Vernon, or those of you online, uh, so good to have you with us. Uh, and my mom always joins us online, so I want to say, because I'm not able to be with her, happy Mother's Day to my mom. You know, my mom and I have a, a really special relationship. Not that that's terribly unique between a mother and a child, but ours is different. Um, <laughs> I, I was, I, I was the, the, the final child. I was, the ba- I was her baby. I am her baby. I mean, my parents had three kids. They finally got it right, and they stopped. So, I mean, I, but my mom and I, um, when I was young, I mean, when we were in Ruston, Louisiana, I was four years old or so, dad would go off to work, Jerry and Lori would get on the bus to go to school, and I would come out with my little lisp, and I would just say, just you and me, mom, just you and me. And we, yeah, I know, that works. Um, <clears throat> And that was, that was, in fact, this morning, I, I texted her, and she said, just you and me, Bob. And, uh, oh, look at that. Look at all this. <laughs> all right, anyway, so four, uh, three years later, we moved to Vancouver, Washington. So this is a new set, surrounding setting. I went off to Lincoln Elementary School. Didn't know anybody. And so for a while, you know, after uh, lunch, we could be dismissed out onto the playground recess. And early on, I, I didn't have friends to play with. I mean, you know, so I'd be just standing out there watching. And one day... <clears throat> No, that wasn't mean to... But one day I was, I was out at the playground and there was one of the older boys uh, was kind of teasing another boy who had Down syndrome. And it, and it bothered me. All the other kids were laughing and, and watching. And as this older boy would tease this, this young boy, uh, the kids were laughing. And I think the, the young boy thought they were cheering for him. So he's playing along. And then they began to, to chase around. And, and the older boy was, was chasing and mocking this, this young boy who had Down syndrome. And and the older boy was running and, and very agile, and he ran out into the, you know, the little play area, and he ducked under one of those monkey bar things. And the other boy who was chasing him didn't see that coming and ran right into it and hit him right in the stomach, and he just went, ugh. And everyone was laughing, and it did something to me. I mean, like physically, I, I just like, it hurt me. And all that afternoon, I couldn't shake it. Just this, this picture, this image, and, and what was happening, and I went home, and, and it was bothering me, and... I came in the back door, and Mom always had an after-school snack for us, and she said, Bobby, go put your stuff away, and I've got a snack. And I went back into my bedroom, and I finally felt the safety and the freedom, and I just began to weep, just began to cry, and, and I, I, I just, it, it, it was messing with my whole being, and I crawled under my bed and was just, just down there crying, hiding and crying. And my mom was like, you know, Bobby, come out for your snack, and I didn't respond, and after a bit, she came looking for me, and she came back to my bedroom and didn't see me, and and she looked in the closet. She heard this muffled sobbing. She looked in the closet, and I wasn't there. And then it sounded like it was coming from under the bed. And she got down on her knees, and she looked, and there I was, hiding in my brokenness, crying under the bed. And, and she said, Bobby, come, come out. And I wouldn't. And she said, what's wrong? And I couldn't tell her. And my mom, this grown woman, I mean, I don't know, she must have been 35 or so at the time. <laughs> um, she got down, leaving all dignity behind, and rolled under the bed just to be with me. You know, this compassion of a mom that feels the pain of her child and, and to just be there and, and to, to want to come alongside and help. And that compassion. And my mom and I are close. And Mom, I love you forever. I like you for always. As long as I'm living, my mama, you'll be. Happy Mother's Day. And I want to say, this, today's not a Mother's Day sermon, by the way. That part was, but that was for free. 
I know for some of you, Mother's Day is a really, really tough time. And, and if you're here in the room today and you just need a hug after service, find me in the comments. I can't hug my mom, so I'm your guy. And uh, I don't care. I mean, one year I did this and I had a, this man come and said, I need a hug. I'm like, you're not a mom. He says, no, I know. I lost my mom. I need a hug. I'm good. I'm good. So anyway, so we're in this series on the, on the book of Psalms. We're looking at selected Psalms, and I selected the Psalms specifically for this weekend, Mother's Day weekend, not because of, uh, you know, that I'm preaching on Mother's Day, but there's a specific word that actually ties into the story I just told you what happened with my mom, and I will get to that eventually. But in these Psalms, as we've seen over these last few weeks, the, the psalmist, different people, right, under different uh, circumstances, different occasions, and not all the psalms are in the book of Psalms. In fact, last week we looked at one that happened in a very joyous occasion when, when David was bringing the ark back into Jerusalem, big, big parade, dance party, all this going on, and he writes a psalm in First Chronicles. We looked at it briefly, just want to revisit one verse out of it. First Chronicles 12, 16, 12 says, remember the wonders he has done, his miracles, that line, remember the wonders he has done, is a practice that I believe we need to have in our lives. We see it throughout the book of Psalms. We've seen it throughout human history that there are these times when we, we call to mind, we remember, we bring back what are the things that God has done. Now you might say, well, yeah, that was during this big joyous occasion. I would say that even when, and especially when things are not going great, when it's not joyous, when there's difficulties, we need to practice this. In the midst of our circumstances and our situations, it's not burying our head in the sand. It's not pretending like it's not difficult. But in the midst of all that, to take the greatness of God and lay it alongside our situation, our circumstances. And when we do that, when we recount these things of, that we know about God, it does something for us. There's in so doing of, of, yes, here's my reality, but here's God and his greatness and the miracles he's done and the wonders of his life that we began to, to have this change where we're gaining an accurate perspective. And it's not, it's not just this positive thinking. It's factual recollection, the things that we know to be true. Now, today, the psalm that we're going to look at, and today we're going to look at Psalm 103, the psalm that we looked at is a reminder of this very thing. Not only is it a reminder, but it's an instruction to tell us how to do this, and it's an example of one who did do this. And so I think we can gain a lot out of it. If you are familiar with Psalm 103, or if you were to just read Psalm 103, you might think, man, things must have been going great. This must have been like a mountaintop experience. This must have been a peak time for David. But I would venture to say that maybe, maybe this Psalm was written in one of the valleys of his life, one of the times when it was difficult, one of the times where he was struggling. And maybe he writes this as a reminder to himself because what you'll see is this is one of those psalms that was not written to be used corporately. This wasn't the psalm that would be, you know, spoken of as a part of a, a liturgy in the, in the gathering at the temple. This is one of those personal ones. And David, <laughs> David is writing to himself. He's preaching a sermon to himself. He is being his own life coach, his own spiritual life coach. He's talking to himself in this psalm. I don't know if you ever talk to yourself. You got to be careful because that can get you committed. I, I shared this a few years ago. I, it was um, pre-COVID. I'd gone to the hospital to, to pray with someone and uh, drove it up at St. Joe's, a beautiful Friday afternoon, drove up to St. Joe's to the designated clergy parking. They have a couple of spots that are, that are, that are reserved for pastors and they were filled, probably by some non-clergy person. <laughs> 
But it was okay. I'll go park with the common folks. So I drove out of the clergy area, and I went out into the parking lot, and it was just filled. The first row was filled. The second row was filled. And so there's that far lot, and I was off to that far lot. I had to go clear out there. I was like, no problems. Beautiful day. I could walk across the parking lot. And there was a spot on the far side of it, and that's where I pulled in. And I pulled in next to a car. You, you've seen these kind of cars, and there's, there's no judgment in what I'm about to tell you at all, all right? No condemnation. This is a car that the back of it was just plastered with stickers. And it's always interesting because, and if this is you, great. <laughs> but, but I think, wow, that's a lot of stickers. And, and then you start reading them, and you kind of you start painting a picture about who might be driving this car, who might own this car. And this one, again, no judgment. There's, you know, the goddess lives and magic is afoot. Ooh. You know, and all about coexisting and, and this, that's great. And, and there was no question which way politically this person leaned or where they stood on certain, uh, certain issues. And then there was a sticker about this person's spirit animal. Now, I know I'm not politically correct and I'm old school. I just don't get the spirit animal thing. I'm I'm sorry. But I thought, that's interesting. So I got out of my car, and, I, and I'm walking across the parking lot, and it just, I'm just thinking about this, and I said out loud on this sunny, beautiful Friday afternoon, I said, my spirit animal is a platypus. <laughs> and what you just did, I just did. I laughed out loud. But listen, if you can learn to laugh at yourself, you have got a lifetime filled with happiness. I laughed out loud. It just cracked me up. I'm, 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 I'm laughing at my own stuff. This is good. And so I just said, I'm going to do that again. I said, my spirit animal is a platypus. And as I was saying that, I walked past this car with the window down, and there was someone sitting in there. <laughs> See, you have to be careful when you're talking to yourself. <laughs> my precious. You know, I mean, you start doing that. People start. Anyway, the psalmist, David, he talks to himself, and this isn't the only place. Two weeks ago, Pastor Kip preached on Psalm 42. In Psalm 42, he talks to himself. He says, why are you so downcast, O my soul? He's talking to him, his inner core being. Why are you so downcast? Why are you down? Why are you under the, under the weather today? What's going on? And then he instructs him. And he says, put your hope in God. He just talks to himself. And we see this again in Psalm 103. It's interesting because Psalm 103, he's writing this. It, probably as he's writing it, he never intends for anyone to ever see this. This is for him. And he starts off this way, Psalm 103, verse 1. It says, praise the Lord, O my soul. Some of your translations will say, bless the Lord. We sing the song, bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And all my inmost being, praise his holy name. He's not giving this as an instruction to Israel. He's not giving this as something to be put in the Bible. He's giving this to himself in probably a time where he's struggling, where he's got doubts, where he's questioning God, and he just coaches himself. He says, listen, self. I says to myself, self, I says, this is what we're going to do. And he, he exhorts and instructs himself. And in so doing, he steers his mind. Like he directs his thoughts. He focuses his, his attention. He decides, I'm not going to let my circumstances or my feelings or my doubts or my thoughts dictate how I respond. I am at this point, I'm going to take control and I'm going to tell myself, my soul, the core of my being, my inner person, I'm going to tell myself what to do and I'm, this is what we're going to do. We're going to praise the Lord. 
Everything with the core of who I am, this is what we're going to do. And it's not just this general, yeah, just say praises. I mean, he gets very specific. And he substantiates it. And he says, this is how we're going to do it. Verse 2. He repeats part of it. He says, praise the Lord, O my soul, again, and forget not all his benefits. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to remember all the things, all the things that God's done. His faithfulness. We're just going to do a benefits inventory. We're going to remember through our lives the times God answered prayer, the times God provided, the times God protected, what God has done in this situation. We're going to do that not only in our life, we're going to do that in our family's lives, in our friends' lives, and throughout history, and throughout Scripture. We're just going to take this benefits inventory. That's what we're going to do. He's just telling himself, taking, taking control here. I think it's interesting, and I wonder, this is one of those things where I think there might be a connection, and maybe someday we'll find out if it's not. But it's with Mary in the song she wrote. I mean, Mother's Day, Mary, that's, I mean, this is a good tie, right? Because if you ever find yourself in times of trouble, Mother Mary speaks to you, <laughs> speaking words of wisdom. Okay, so Mary, Mary is pregnant, and she goes to see her cousin or a relative, Elizabeth. Biologically speaking, neither one of these ladies should be pregnant, could be pregnant. Mary's a virgin. Elizabeth is well beyond childbearing years. But they get together, kind of a a mops group or something. I don't know. Mothers of pregnant ladies or something. I don't know. So they get together and Mary writes this song. It's found in Luke 1. This Magnificat. And I've got to believe, because Mary is this righteous woman, Jewish woman, she would have been very, very familiar with Psalm 103. And I wonder if Mary says, you know what David did in Psalm 103? I need to do that. Because she writes this song and she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Because he's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And then listen to what she says. For the mighty one has done great things for me. And then the rest of the song, she just begins to recount all the things that God has done, all the blessings that he's done, the way he is, his mighty deeds, his mercy that extends, the way he provides for the poor, the way he brings down the unjust. And she even goes back as far as Abraham and his descendants. She just does this, just like, just like she does this, this benefits inventory. So David says, this is what we're going to do today. Self, self, we're going to praise the Lord. We're going to bless the Lord. I mean, to the core of our being, we're going to do this. And we're going to do this benefits inventory. And we're just going to ask ourselves, what do I know to be true about God? What do I know to be true about God? I see what's happening in the world. I see how disheartening that is, but what do I know to be true about God? I know what's going on in my life. I know the circumstances that I'm facing, but what do I know to be true about God? I know how I'm feeling. I know the doubts I'm having. I know the struggles in my thoughts, but what do I know to be true about God? To come back and just think, what are all the benefits of life with my creator, my savior, my redeemer, my sustainer? A couple weeks ago, I was speaking with a lady who's really involved in our church. And it's interesting, she's been involved in the church her entire life, multiple different churches throughout the country. And in her life, there have been some things that have happened in church world that has been really disappointing. Leadership, decisions that have been made. Stuff that has been, for her, actually very hurtful, um, painful, very frustrating. And I, and I asked her, I said, 
How is it that you haven't become jaded? Why are you still involved? Why? why, why? And I won't give you the specifics, but the essence of what she said is, this is what I know to be true about God and his beautiful bride. It's to have that. Charles Wesley, years ago, he was sick, he was filled with doubts, and he he comes through that, and he writes this, this long, long poem. Out of it became this hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. Oh, why could he say that? Because these things we know to be true about God. And so David does. And he starts, and it probably was a whole lot more, but he he does this little short list of here are the benefits. Here are the things I'm going to remind myself of. And the first one he jumps right out of the gate with is this, verse 3. He says, here's what we're not going to forget. He is the one who forgives all your sins. Now, that's great. We, We sang about that this morning. You know, that he forgives all of our sins. But remember, David is not writing this thinking that there will be a group of people in Bellingham and online 3,000 years later needing to hear that their sins are forgiven. While that is true, he's writing that he's talking to himself. Now, you could say, has he got multiple personalities? No, he's just saying, he forgives all our sins. He's talking to his inner being. You know our sins. We know our sins. Everyone knows some of our sins. But there are other ones that others don't know. He would write in Psalm 19, forgive my hidden faults. Those attitudes, those thoughts, those desires, those motives that no one else can see. He'd go on and say, keep me from presumptuous sins. He, he knows. He says, God forgives all of our sins. And when he talks about all of our sins, I think David recognizes that there is no sin too small that is exempt from the need of forgiveness. And there's no sin too large that is excluded from the ability to be forgiven. And so he says, he forgives all, all our sins. Now, we're going to kind of stop there. He goes on, and his list goes on, and these are things that we may or may not know about his life. You know, he, he uh, heals all my diseases, and he rescued my, redeemed my life from the pit, and he, he fil- fulfills my desires with good things, and, you know, all of these other, other benefits, he gives me strength. And, and then he says, but but he forgives all of my sins. And he kind of comes back to this again and again. Jump down to verse 7, and he takes this little twist in his his, uh, self-diatribe here. He says, he made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. Now, wait a second, David. I thought you were talking to yourself. Now you're going about talking to Moses and all this stuff. Moses was 400 years earlier. You say, oh, okay, well, I get it. He's talking about God's benefits to himself, and now he's thinking through the history of Israel and those things. That's great. Yes, and. And the reality is you wouldn't catch this at first reading. The reality is when he says that, you know, God has been faithful to Moses and the people of Israel, he has a very specific event in mind that he's referring to, and it ties in to this whole thing of he forgives all of our sins. The event that he's talking about, because he'll tip his hand and we'll see this in the next verse, the event that he's talking about can be read about in Exodus 33 and 34. You can do this on your own later. Exodus 33 and 34, God is, you know, taking his people out of bondage and captivity and and, and enslavement. They're they're out in the wilderness, and he enters into a covenant with them. He says, you know, I'll be your God, you be my people, let's do this, I'll I'll bless you, you follow my, they're all like, we're in, yeah, this is going to be great. We're going to follow you and obey you. We're going to be your people. 
And Moses goes up to get Ten Commandments, and they make a golden calf right out the gate. It's like, okay, we broke the covenant. Moses comes down and smashes the Ten Commandments. And uh, God says, okay, let's try this again. We still need those Ten Commandments, but Mo, get your own tablets this time. I mean, that's really, it's in the Bible. So he does. He chisels out. Like, okay. Goes back up on the mountain. Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments a second time. Probably chiseling them himself this time. And then he says, hey, God, show me your glory. And God says, mm, not a good idea. Because then there would be no Mo. So he says, this is what I'll do. Put you a little place in the rock, put my hand over it, and I'll let you see kind of the, like the back of me and stuff. And so he does, and so he passes by. And after he passes by, the first time in Scripture, right now, with Moses up there, God describes himself. He reveals his character. He says, Moses, I want to tell you who I am, what I'm like, how I operate. And he gives them these five very specific character traits of God. And what's interesting is when he does this in Exodus 34, we'll look at it in a minute, this line that God gives to Moses becomes the most requoted verse in the Bible. More than 27 other times, David and others will refer back to this verse. It is the most quoted verse in the Bible of what God says. And David now, when he's talking about, you've been faithful to Moses in Israel, he requotes a portion of it. He gives four of those five descriptors. Verse 8, he says this. He says, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. This I know to be true about God. I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in history. I've seen it with Moses and Israel. It came from the very lips of God. Now, a little side note. In order to keep this sermon shorter, there's a big section that we're not going to do. But if you want to learn more about this whole thing, I would encourage you to Google the Bible Project, the character of God. And if you Google that, Bible Project did a whole series of these short little videos on this phrase, on this thing that happened in Exodus 34. And there's like six videos, they're about six minutes each, and it gives you a great overview and a depth of teaching that you won't get today. And if you say, that's wonderful, I want more, then if you type that into their podcast, they did about six one-hour teachings on each of these, and I've listened to all of them. That's why I've cut all this out of the sermon. Because this sermon could go for hours and hours and hours. It's, it's amazing. So if you want to go deeper on that, go to those things, and, and you, can, you can go as deep as you want. It's fantastic. But let's look at this experience out of Exodus chapter 34. Moses is in the cleft of the rock. God passes by, and it says this, 34 verse 6, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, capital, all capital letters. Some of you know when, it's, when the Lord is spelled in all capital letters in your Bible, that's the tetragrammaton, the, the, the unspeakable name of God, the yod heh vav It's where we get our word Yahweh. This is all going to come into play next week, and there will be a quiz. So God says, you know, I am that I am. I am that I am. Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord. And then he describes himself for the first time in Scripture. He says, you want to know who I am? You want to know what I'm like? You want to know how I operate? The compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger, 
abounding in love and faithfulness. There are the five. That line is requoted over and over and over again in Scripture. He goes on to say, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So when David references this, and that God forgives all our sins, he's thinking about, God, I know how faithful you were to your people. When they broke the covenant, first thing right out of the gate, and yet you met them with compassion and grace. You were slow to become angry. You were faithful and you were loving. He understands that. Now, I think it's really important that we take one really quick moment to look at the next verse, though it's not really having anything to do with this sermon, because some of you will read this, and this will trip you up, because this is one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. In verse 7, it says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of their fathers to the third and fourth generation. You don't know how many times I've talked with people who are messed up with this verse. How come I'm being held responsible for my dad's sins or my grandfather's or my great-grandpappy's sins? Can I tell you something? My great-grandfather, Smith Whitenack, spent 15 years in the big house in Oklahoma. He was running greyhounds. He was making up some moonshine. He had 400 gallons of it stolen. And then he shot his partner and killed him. Manslaughter. I don't want to be held responsible for that. I've never even made moonshine. <laughs> That's not what he's talking about. Real quick on this one, just so you can, can put it to rest. God is consistent. So if we do the same things our forefathers did, we can't expect that we're going to be treated any differently. If we make the same mistakes they did, we're going to suffer the same consequences they did. And sometimes we watch and we learn from other generations. And if we continue to do that, we're going to suffer consequences. That's what he's talking about. So he says, break the chain, learn from your pappy, your dad, and your gramps, and, and don't do those things. Okay, are we good with that? Let's move on. Okay, back to verse 8. He quotes this. He says, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Now, this is what I love, because so often in Scripture, when things are in a list, sometimes, not always, sometimes there's a reason for that. I wonder if that's the case here. This is the first time God says, I want to show you what I'm really like. And the first word that he says is, I am holy. Well, he is. That's not what he says. I am just. Well, he is, but that's not what he says. I am all-powerful. I am eternal. I am the, the righteous. All of those are true. They says, you want to know who I am? You want to know what I'm like? You want to know how I operate? I'm compassionate. It's as if God says, when you think of me, I want the first thought that comes to your mind. He's a compassionate God. Oh, yeah, he's just. He's holy. He's all. I want that to be your first thought. He's a compassionate God. That's where I say the situation with my mom and the compassion of my mom for, for me is this beautiful picture, this maternal picture of the very character of God. Now, some of you right now are saying, yeah, Bob, that's a stretch. You're just trying to tie it into Mother's Day. Maybe. But here's something I learned from that Bible project, because I don't know Hebrew. This word compassion is the word rachum. You want to say that? Don't. You'll spit on someone. <laughs> rachum. Sorry. The noun of that, compassion, is rachamim. And both words, the root is 
Rahem, which is womb. And I say, well, okay, it's just right. No, hold on a second. That being compassionate and compassion, it comes from this root of some deep inner affection, emotion, connection, action that comes from this, this deep commitment and, and desire. Like God says, yes, I'm in your heavenly father, but the first thing I want, to, want you to know about me is there's this like maternal aspect to me, the compassion. I mean, some of you are moms, some of you are, and, and you know, you, you have a baby, that baby wakes up, spits up, and messes up. That's it. And yet you love, and you serve, and you care, and you give sleepless nights, and you, you know, who cares about the blouse and all that? I mean, you, you just, you're so filled with love and, and gratitude. You're just so committed to the compassion of a mother to a child. Child is part of your womb. There's still this connection. And I know I'm speaking way out of my league here, but if you're a nursing mother, that baby cries, from what I understand, never experienced this. There's a physiological reaction. Your milk lets down. Now, some of you right now are saying, who made you, Pastor B-O-B-G-Y-N? Okay, I know. I know. I am way out of my league. But the Bible says this in Isaiah 49. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast? And have no rahamim, or compassion, on the child she is born. Maybe he's saying, listen, that's physically not even possible because of what happens in your body. But the emotional connection. And then our Heavenly Father says, though she may forget, I will not forgive you. Forget you. There's this maternal, this compassion a couple weeks ago during Palm Sunday, I was talking about when Jesus enters into Jerusalem and the last time that he'd come into Jerusalem before that, he comes in and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stoned the prophets and killed those who, sent, who are sent to you, how I have longed to gather your children like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. This picture, this maternal picture of a, of a hen who cares, who's protecting and providing and the compassion that she has. Jesus says, how I've longed for that. This compassion, Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, where he says, when he saw, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had this compassion. There it is. He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, like father, like son. Our heavenly father says, listen, I want the first thing to come to your mind when you think about me. It's, oh yeah, I know that God. I know what he's like. I know how he operates. He is compassionate. He is a compassionate God. And then it's really quite, quite amazing. Because as David is going through all this, then, then he begins to, to kind of turn a corner again. Now, now, I'll say this. Sometimes people say, I don't like the Old Testament God. I mean, he seems like he's mad, mean, angry, unfair. I, I hear that all the time. God, that, that Old Testament God. I like the New Testament Jesus. That's better. Old Testament God's mean and angry and unfair. I'll agree with you on one point. God is completely unfair. 100%. No doubt about it. Absolutely. But where I'll disagree is, he's not mean and angry and unfair. Actually, just the opposite. 
He's compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, faithful, and unfair. David says this, verse 10. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Do you know how unfair that is? And aren't you grateful? Aren't you thankful that we have an unfair God? He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Now remember, David's not speaking this for us. He's not writing this for us. We can get it. He's talking to himself, oh soul. We know our sins, remember? And he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. I mean, the big one that we always come back to. Do you realize that in that whole encounter with Bathsheba, like David broke five of the big ten commandments, shall not covet your wife, eh. shall not steal, he stole her, shall not commit adultery, done, shall not bear false witness, he lies, deceives, and tries to cover it up, shall not murder, guilty as, one whole tablet he broke. I mean, if anyone deserves to be punished, it's David. And he says, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. When he's confronted with all of that sin, he writes Psalm 51. And what's so beautiful? He goes back to Exodus 34, 6 again. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. That's Exodus 34, 6. Then he goes on, according to your great compassion. That's Exodus 34, 6. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression, my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I done what is evil in your sight, so that you approve right when you speak and justified when you judge. And then he says, surely I have been sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David says, I am a sinaholic. I was sinning in the womb. I'm a professional sinner. But this I know to be true about God. While I may have been a sinner in the womb, God has this womb-like compassion for me. And he forgives and does not treat me as my sins deserve. And I got to hurry. And then, and then he illustrates with these infinite distances. Verse 17, we won't look at it, but he says, from everlasting to everlasting is his love for those who fear him. And then he, but he gets more specific in verse 10 and 11, and, and while it's, it's beyond his comprehension, he says this in verse 10, he says, or verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. Listen, moms, you know what I see you post on Facebook all the time on your kid's birthday? I love you to the moon and back. David said, that's not so bad. The moon, it's the closest little planet we got here. As high as the heavens are above the earth. Yeah, you moms, come on. As high as the heavens are above the earth. He didn't even know how high that was. We don't even know how high that was. We thought we did, and then we had the Hubble telescope, and that took us deeper into space. Now we have the James Webb telescope. It takes us even deeper into space. And the more they find out, the more true this verse becomes. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for them. And maybe the greatness isn't just the magnitude. I love you this much. Maybe the greatness is the fact that there's the consistency, that their days were marked, their calendars were marked by the sun and by the moon, 
Their, charts were cor- their courses were charted by the stars because they could always count on them. They were consistent. And maybe part of the greatness of God's love is my days are marked by the consistent love of God. And my life, the course of my life is charted by this love that doesn't change. And then in verse 12, he says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. There were no two farther points on earth. The east, I mean, that was like, our maps are always oriented to the north. Theirs were always oriented to the east. That's why they call the east the Orient, because the sun comes up and they could always get their bearings from that. And no matter how far east they went, the horizon kept moving. It was the farthest point. They could never get to the end of it. And to the west, as far as they went to the west, the horizon kept moving. It could never get to the end of it. As far as the east is, we can't even get there. As far as the west is, that's how far he's removed our transgressions. And what if, could it be, completely unbeknownst to David, empowered by the Holy Spirit, what he does when he says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, as far as the east is from the west, that maybe he doesn't even know it, but he's painting a picture of the greatest expression the greatest display of compassion there ever was. And maybe he's given us a glimpse of the cross. As high as the heavens are above the earth, as far as the east is to west, that's the compassion. And maybe he doesn't even know, but he says, there will come a time when you will see this expression of God's compassion through the cross. He does it again in Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will. It's the cross. It's what Paul prays in Ephesians. I pray that you would have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love. It's the cross. In Romans, he says, I'm convinced that neither height nor depth nor anything in all creation, it's the cross. You want to think about something about our God, think this first and foremost. His compassion for you is such that he would go to any length. He would leave all of glory, come down, to the depths of earth, lower himself, crawl under the bed of humanity where we are hidden, broken, and crying, and come alongside and say, I am your God, and I have compassion for you. Listen, I got to stop. This is what I want to challenge you with this week. I want to challenge you to talk to yourself. Not about your spirit animal. (laughs) You talk to yourself like David did. And you make your own benefits inventory. You go through that list. You remember how faithful God has been. You remember those times. And you just tell yourself, soul, this is what we're going to do today. We're going to praise our God. Because no matter what's going on in our world, no matter what our circumstances, no matter what our situation, no matter what we're feeling, this we know true to be true about God. And the cross has the final 